Welcome to the Influence Podcast. We've reached the midpoint of season one, and on this episode, we are reviewing and breaking down the top quotes and storylines from the first half of the season. This includes discussions around what makes brand partnerships successful, social media algorithms, cancel culture, and much more. Joining me today is our director of digital at the Influence Agency, Elijah Vio. Eli is an OG in the digital space, and he's seen it all over the last 15 years. So we're also going to be looking ahead to the second half of this first season and teeing up some of the exciting guests that are on the way. Hope you enjoy. All right. I am here with the man, the myth, the legend, Eli. We've been friends for a very long time, an OG in the digital space. We've seen a lot of things, and now we've got to participate and hear some conversations together. So we're kind of recapping the first half of the season and some of the people that I've spoken with so far and some key learnings. What do you got for me, buddy? What are some of the things that jumped out to you? Well, there was a lot. You did a fantastic job just to start really laying out some good conversational points for a lot of the guests. So I really, I, I went through and listened to the episodes a couple of times, starting with, you know, one of our favorites, Amber Mack. She's a bit of a legend, at least locally for us here in, in Toronto and then across Canada and, and actually across the world. One part that really stuck out for me from her episode was when she started discussing hinting toward longevity, but she started discussing, you know, not to put all your eggs in one basket. You know, you're an online creator, you're an influencer. Oh crap, you pop off, right? Something goes viral. All of a sudden you've got tens of thousands or something. And now you're like, oh, I've made it. And she went in to actually say, you know, on her end, one of the ways that she, and she used the word insulate, which really resonated with me as sort of a business-minded person, but, you know, she really focuses on insulating her revenue streams across multiple channels. So, from there, it's like, how important is it that you, you keep your edge through variety and income distribution, you know, even as you're established? You know, I look at someone like Amber Mack and you would think she doesn't need to be caring so much about success at this point, but it's still very much something she's hungry for. So, you know, what are your thoughts on insulation and income streams as a creator and not getting excited and putting all your eggs in one basket once something jumps off? think she makes it look easy, right? That's yeah, right. one thing because she hosts and obviously she runs programs. She does collaborations for herself. I mean, she does a television. She does all types of different things. So she makes it look like it's not that challenging. I think there's a really diverse skill set required of all of those different things. It's right. different to be a host versus being a content creator versus running programs. For, these are all like very distinct skills. So I absolutely agree with what she's saying because the more you can diversify yourself as a creator, the more you future-proof yourself, the more new opportunities that creates. It's certainly a great thing to be able to do. I think there's not necessarily something that everybody can actually pull off though. Right. But I think the actual spirit of what she's saying definitely works. Because even if you can't do three, four, five, six of those things, there's no reason why you can't do a few of them. And the idea that content creators, if they're relying only on the content that they create for TikTok, for Instagram, for whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. Like you said, I don't know if something changes and you're, you're in a little bit of trouble, right? So I'm sure you've seen too. So somebody's a fitness influencer on Instagram. Well, now all of a sudden they're coming out with fitness programs and there's a 10 month or excuse me, a 10 week program yep. per class or this per, uh, you know, to join for the entire session or whatever the case may be. You're seeing that with, uh, you know, fashion influencers that are doing co-branded partnerships so that they actually are now getting a piece of the action as well. So yeah. I think it plays to the broader shift that's been taking place, which is that content creators are much more than media companies now. They're actually becoming their own businesses. 
Right. And like thinking about regulations then in terms of, okay, well, how much can you earn and where are you allowed to earn? And that, that made me think of with the college and university athletes and, and how, you know, they recently were able to diversify their own streams of income through regulation. Um, you know, any thoughts on that in terms of that stifling a creator and or them being at the whims of really a platform, Facebook or TikTok could change its algorithm and boom, all of a sudden the action is drained. Yeah. Okay. Lots, <laughs> lots on that one. So the first one is the name image likeness with the NCAA for sure. I'm a big yeah. believer and fan of because the billions and billions of dollars that the NCAA has made over the years from selling jerseys, obviously digital media sales, video games, all of that kind of stuff for athletes to be able to get a piece of that, I think makes a lot of sense because they're not all going pro. The majority of them will not. And so you know, if you're not going to make your money as a pro, then you're an amateur. And if you're not able to use your name image likeness at that stage, then that ship has sailed by the time your college career is done. Yeah. So I'm definitely a big fan of that in terms of regulation as it pertains to, you know, like algorithms and how that might impact creators. I am a huge believer and proponent. I'm going to be championing this for months and years to come, which is, I think there should absolutely be much more regulation within the social media space, just as there is in any other industry that evolves. It happens in the auto industry. Yeah. It happened in, in the 70s with seatbelts. It happened you know, at the turn of the century with the Industrial Revolution in manufacturing in terms of hours worked and safety requirements for employees. This is just a very natural progression for, for industries and businesses as they evolve and mature. And we haven't really been able to capture that yet as it comes to social media and digital because the people, in my opinion, that are are legislating this and Amber Mac talked about it, don't really understand it. Like if you even watch Zuckerberg in the past in front of Congress, it's like there's no way that they can regulate something that they don't get at all. So I think what she brought up, she mentioned Andrew Yang as one politician that sort of yeah. understands the space better. I think if they can come up with whether it is like a think tank or whether it is some special interest group that is informed by people from the industry who understand what it's all about, then that is going, in my opinion, to bring a lot more safety to the platforms. It'll protect the public. It'll guard against misinformation. We kind of did talk about that, and we just honestly scratched the surface. That's something I could yeah. go deep on for a while, but I'm a, I'm a big believer in that. Yeah, yeah, very much. That's a whole other episode in itself, just talking about the shortcomings in social media regulation. Going on to Stuart Reynolds, man, that was probably my favorite episode, I would say, having listened to them a couple of times. One thing that stood out for me from Stuart's episode was that, and Brittle Star, for those who don't know, was when he shared his story about things were kind of down and this one gig came up and it was a dating app and it was just everyone around him was like, no, don't do it. And he did it. And for whatever reasons he did. And then, you know, things started jumping off again for him. But he then went into touching on the importance of brand alignment as an original content creator, right? So there's affiliates and influencers and people who do all kinds of stuff, but then there's people who produce original content. And how important is that really? And, and that's a question coming from your end, being someone on the marketing side, working with the client, working with people to create campaigns. You know, how important is that alignment? How dangerous is it if you get that off? And, you know, the industry's, it's hot, like you said, so what's that playing field like? Because 
sometimes you need to shift your personal brand as well. And that can be shaky. You can lose people along the way. So where does alignment come for you in terms of original content creators? I think the people that you'll see with longevity and that are going to have sustainable careers in this space can do two things really well. Number one, they do view themselves as a business. So there's an interesting shift that's happened. Actual businesses have now been forced to become media companies and consider themselves media companies and think about the content that they produce. And at the same time, content producers have now become businesses and they really need to think about their partnerships and that alignment and what that company stands for and whether it makes sense to their audience and, and what they're producing. So I think it's absolutely critical. It's something that I think a lot of people struggle with because if you're building an audience and somebody comes out and says, uh, you know, we got $2,500 for you to do a reel and a story about fill in the blank, like, whoa, I'm getting paid for this now? This is yeah. awesome, right? Yeah. And then you'll see that, okay, now a couple more deals trickle in, but all of a sudden they've done one deal with this company, one deal with that, and there's they're kind of jumping around. It doesn't make a great deal of sense, but they're excited to be getting paid from the work that they're producing. I don't, sure, you, know, you don't disparage them for that, but that will hurt them in the long run. You actually have to have a really long-term view. And one thing that we we tell content creators all the time is, by the way, if you do a deal with, I'm just going to come up with a big company, Nike today, that means you're probably not going to get that much interest from a New Balance, from a Reebok, from an Adidas, right. from anybody that they deem as competitors for three months, six months, nine months, perhaps ever, right? You might discount yourself from working with that company. They don't always think about that. They're kind of chasing what's in front of them when they get started. And then as people gain more experience, you start to think bigger picture about what it means to their career in the long run. I think that's really important. And then the second point, which you just referenced, was pivots or shifts that need to happen over time. So some really great examples are like, let's say that you are a fashion influencer, mm -hmm. a fitness influencer, whatever the case may be, but you become a parent. And now everything in your life, as, as you know, you're a dad. The game's changed. changes, right? Yeah, it's totally different. So everything that you're doing is within the context of being a parent. Being a parent is kind of like the number one job and everything else falls below that. So you've seen... There are some people who go through that sort of life change and they weave it in beautifully to their content. And even Stuart, yeah. his son is a content creator and historically they've played off of each other. They've supported one another. It's a smart move. Stuart involves his wife quite a lot too. She co-hosts right. his morning show a lot. So he's, he's managed to do that really seamlessly, but it's not always that easy. But again, I think the people that are going to achieve sustainability and be able to build this into a long-term career as their life changes, as it always does, change is just part of life, then they find ways to find brands that align with that change in their life or to shift their content in a very natural way so that their audience sticks around. And like you said, some of their followers might drop off along the way, but then you yeah. have an opportunity to pick some more up. But it's definitely not easy. I would, And hey, I can't even pretend that I know what exactly that is like because it's not like I'm a content producer, but from working with so many of them over the years, as, as we have collectively at the influence agency, you see that come up yeah. all the time and it, it's definitely a challenge. Yeah. I've been part of, you know, some really bad rebrands in, in my career, things that have tanked companies, um, stuff that nightmares are made out of. And I've experienced it myself as well, you know, with websites that I've started and, and tried to foster over the years, segueing into episode three and talking about pivoting, you know, we had Keith Wallace from Collision. I mean, massive, massive marketing community conference. No doubt one of the biggest in the world, if not the biggest. And pretty mind-blowing to hear about, A, how quickly 
that organization pivoted from an in-person, large-scale, multi-vendor event to a digital-first experience. And what really stood out to me in sort of a futuristic sci-fi movie kind of way is when he was talking about that Mingle tool they developed. And they developed that Mingle tool as like a chat-style speed networking platform with some AI, you know, some machine learning, some AI in there to actually match people up for these quick interactions and how, you know, in terms of collision, though they did a quick pivot to digital for their conference, they still led with how do we still create meaningful connections at digital events. So like off the back of that, you know, can technology ever replace sort of that value of in-person interaction and experience, you know, and especially in a large group setting, it's, it's a big question. So this is to me, I think going to be a bit of a generational thing in the future. So I think like you and I are old enough that we, we talked about, I talked about this with Amber Mac too, but we're old enough to remember life before the internet. So there's going to be this generational gap, which is those who have only ever lived in the digital world. And then those who remember a time without. So for me personally, the answer to that question is I would absolutely still want physical events. I still want to go and see people and say hello and shake a hand and all of that stuff, the actual visceral reactions that you get from being present. But then of course, Facebook slash, oh, excuse me, meta, you know, they'll (laughs) say, just put on a headset. You can get there and experience the exact same thing. You know what? There's going to be kids that are born in 2010 that in five, 10 years, you know, they might be going to university in a headset, but I think that they're going to really miss out on the awkward moment with your roommate in the dorm where you're really just trying to figure out like, am I going to be able to get along with this person for the next nine months or the, you know (laughs) what I mean? All of those moments where as a human, you're forced to interact with other people and figure it out and get comfortable. We're we're actually removing that from a lot of young people's lives where they can do everything through their phone or in the future through a headset or in the future through a hologram or whatever the case may be. So I think there's going to be like a normalization of that for a lot of young people who are like, I just grew up with this. This is just sort of like what I know. But for somebody like myself, and I don't know about you, I'll throw it back to you to see if you feel the same way, but I don't want to stop seeing people. I think that that's an important part of life and business and communication, community, all that kind of stuff. But I, I think there is going to be this two groups of people based on how old they are. What do you think? Truthfully, the first thing I think is, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger in in Total Recall. I mean, that didn't end up good for that guy. He ended up going nuts, shooting like a record-breaking amount of people in a single movie. I don't know, you know, like it it can strap it on a headset and being whisked off to some magical faraway land ever replace, thinking scientifically, biologically, can it ever replace the reactions that happen when, for example, I see you and we give each other a big hug? you know, or the high five or the people standing around in a circle after an event or after a team set, you know, can virtual ever truly reproduce those chemical reactions? And for me, it's a hard no. Maybe that's because of we're on that cusp generation, you know, we grew up eating food at the table, but we still remember the first wireless remote. We remember hitting the internet for the first time. Uh, video games, the advent of all the modern day stuff that we have now. That's a hot topic for sure. VR, clearly there's some big, big movements happening in the space right now. 
going on to Shine Influencers, that was an interesting conversation. It was yourself and our two guests. And one thing you said stood out to me, and I think I mentioned it previous, but you said it's hot out there. And that was in reference to cancel culture, right? In reference to influencers who maybe have conflicting moments, whether it's early on in their career, whether it's after they become established, perhaps it's from them speaking up on something, perhaps it's for them not speaking up in their audience, or perhaps it's for brand misalignment, right? Like we were talking about. There's a really, really high level of importance, I feel, on influencers taking those conflicting moments and not just rolling with the punches, but actually being able to turn them into an opportunity for transparency with their audience. And you know, when is it okay to advocate? These are things that I wrestle with in terms of if a client asks me, I'm not 100% sure because it really depends on them. But cancel culture, it's hot out there, man. What is this mechanism that happens? And you know, what can influencers do from, from you know, your experience on the front lines, building out campaigns and seeing things like this go wrong every now and then? This actually tied in a little bit to Amber's episode and to Stuart's and actually upcoming with Rhea Carey, Coach Carey. Um, for Amber, we were just sort of talking about algorithms. And I think that's one thing that this plays a little bit into regulation as well, which is just that these algorithms are geared towards if people are angry or fired up or even if it's a positive emotion, if it's super right. happy, which obviously would be a good thing, but they're geared towards really sort of frothing red meat reactions, right? And so the more of that you give these algorithms, the more they serve. And I think that's actually an issue. I think they need to be reconstructed so that they're not geared towards divisive conversations or basically supporting conversations that end up becoming really, really hot. Like I was Mm -hmm. saying that, right? It gets really, really, really hot out there. And then for Stuart, he's a perfect example of somebody that can take these really, and they're challenging complex topics. Let's not kid ourselves, right? When we're talking about um, indigenous reconciliation or, right. or BLM, this is not like a headline or a punchline, like all you got to do is this, you know, yeah. it's like, this takes really deep analysis and understanding to peel back the layers of these things and to make sense of it. And then to build from there, it's complicated. I actually think he does a really fantastic job of taking these really difficult conversations and just making them more relatable. And also it's sort of taking the pot off the oven, just like cooling it down a little bit the way that he does it. You don't watch his content as it pertains to these issues and necessarily get fired up, but it will make you go, huh, that's interesting. Or he might make you laugh a little bit. He'll make you think a little bit. So I think he's actually a really good example of somebody that can take these really difficult topics and just cool it down and try to have a positive discourse about it. And then coming up with Coach Carrie for sure. So she, and this is something that I was super fascinated by, and I think that you were too, because I think you've already heard it. But yeah. Coach Carrie, instead of calling people out, which is often sort of the root of cancel culture, calling people out, she says calling people in. And she really focuses on that idea of calling people in to say like, instead of ostracizing people all around us and pointing fingers and creating an us versus them world. And well, you did this and I did that. And you're on my side, I'm on your side, tribalism at its highest degree. It's more of a, hold on, let's make sense of why this is happening. And Hey, person over here that either has a divergent point of view or is genuinely looking to round out the way that they approach these issues, but is scared to actually ask the question for fear of 
saying the wrong word or striking the wrong tone or whatever the case may be. She's somebody that does an awesome job of calling people in and making it a safe place to ask those questions so that you can create some bridges between yeah. groups of people, which for me, I'm a big fan of. So I really like her approach to that. Um, and then just sort of as it pertains to Shine, I don't envy their position when it comes to their own talent coming to them and saying like, what should I do about this? What should I do about that? It's a really yeah. hard thing. We have that on the brand side. Throughout the last couple of years, obviously with all of these issues, our clients will come to us and say, how should we handle this? Or how should we handle that? And it is different from one company to the next. Because again, it's not a simple thing. There's a lot of nuance to it. Yeah. Even if you try to say the right thing, but let's say your management team does not reflect the diversity that you claim to be behind. Well, then you can get called up for that. So it's like there's levels to it and you really have to be cognizant of all of the different things that go into these conversations and be very, very careful because there are conversational landmines left, right, and center. Boom. It's hot, man. It really is. It, it really, really is hot out there. And to kind of get towards the end of our conversation here, when we sat down with Sephora as a brand, right? So we're talking about a much, much larger, much wider reaching brand here. And I was so fascinated to hear the complexities and how deep their, their thought internally goes into everything about who they are, why they do what they do. And what stood out to me is, is you know, their use of you know, feedback loops and collecting and surveying customers and thinking about things like cancel culture, you know, I would think that there's value to a regular feedback loop with your customers so that you know how to build those bridges, let's say, right? When the time comes, you know what they're looking for from you. But how mission critical is it taking the modern day retailer like Sephora, who can get, you know, absolutely hammered online if, if they miss a step because of how wide reaching they are? How important is it then for mom and pop shops? Because really what it comes down to is we're going into a future of a much more personalized shopping experience, right? Personalized ads, personalized algorithm generated product recommendations. So, you know, can mom and pop shops survive with their paper ledgers and, you know, receipts in a world with mega retailers like Sephora who are using their resource to gather feedback and to build these incredibly personalized experiences. To me, there's, there's a large gap there in terms of being able to do that responsibly and at a high level and gaining feedback. And then, you know, maybe withering out because you can't keep up. You're not able to personalize your shopping experience. Where, where do you stand with that in terms of data collection and the importance? So I think there's two ways of looking at this. The first one is that small to medium-sized businesses have some advantages. It's a bit of a David versus Goliath situation, mm -hmm. but David's got that slingshot and these small businesses are on the ground. They're closer to the business. They have a much better sort of ability to talk to their customers and to be more in tune with the people that are doing business with them. Where When you're mm -hmm. at Sephora's level, it's way harder to do that because it's such scale, right? So one thing that they've done really, really well and where they're super progressive and where that conversation led was that they do bring people from all different backgrounds to the table to have these conversations. And then they create contextual campaigns that speak to their different groups of people. That's not an easy thing to do, to be aware of all of the different events and initiatives that are going on around and to ensure that you have people from those communities that are driving those conversations 
it's not an easy thing to coordinate and to pull off. So they're super progressive in mm-hmm. that approach. I do think that the funny thing is there's two ways of looking at that. Number one, from a human perspective, that's just a nice thing, right? Because I'm definitely a big believer. If you can't see, you can't be. It's like media in general. The more we can twist narratives and break stereotypes. I'm a big fan of, for instance, I love to clean. I've never once seen just like a guy in a cleaning commercial. It's always right. a woman. That's always bothered me. It, it, that's such a stupid example, but it's just one that comes top of mind to me. Obviously, it runs much more depth to these issues than Tom and cleaning. I'm not trying to, I'm not, <laughs> not trying to minimize. I'm, I'm just saying that just jumped to mind. But yeah. it's really impressive that they've been able to do it at this level of scale. And they've kind of created a, a template or a framework for other businesses to follow. So there's th- that human side, which is just like, that's a nice thing for people to be able to see themselves and relate to the media that they're consuming. The second side, if we wanted to just be hard, cold businessmen at the table and we were business people, we're, yeah. we'd say, that's good business. That is just good business. Even if we are cold to the human side, you would say that is good business because the more you can draw people in, the more you can communicate with different groups of people in terms that are meaningful to them and strike connections with them, the more you can do business with those people. So that's actually just smart. And I think that anybody that uh, small, medium, large enterprise level businesses that are not taking that approach are really going to limit who they can do business with moving forward because there is a demand from the market to have that type of contextual conversation and campaigns, whether you're big, small, or anywhere in between, I think that's just going to be what's demanded of businesses. And there's advantages on both sides. If you're, if you're really large or enterprise, well, you might have more resources and dollars to, to create those feedback loops and to bring more people to the table and to put money into the campaigns that you're building. But if you're right. at the small level, you probably don't have those resources or dollars. In fact, you don't, but you can still talk to people. You can still have community groups. You see people with book clubs, running clubs, all types of different things to build community and to make people feel a part of something. And there's also a major draw towards localization. As much as personalization is huge, you see more and more people are looking local and trying to support local. And that's been happening for some time as well. So I think there's opportunities for everyone, no matter where you stand, but from both a human and a business perspective in the big picture, it's going to be very advantageous to be considerate of all the groups of people around and within your community and to try to communicate with those people, um, that'll just be a smart thing to do. Yeah. Really huge thanks to all the guests we had in the first half of season one. I'm stoked to hear what's coming up. Tom, you know, what are, what are, you, what are you looking forward to here? Oh, we've got some really fun ones. I mentioned Coach Carey coming up. If anybody is unfamiliar with Coach Carey, you're definitely going to want to tune in. If you know Coach Carey, you're going to want to tune in. Lots of really interesting tidbits. I always leave a convert. I had the pleasure of speaking with her on a few different occasions. You always leave a little fired up, feeling a little jazzed She's about great. the world. So it's always nice to, to listen to Coach Carey. We've got Kelly Linehan, who used to work at CP24 and amidst the pandemic, it was really, really draining on her to a point where she had an anxiety attack, but she didn't know that's what it was in the moment and ended up completely just walking away from what is a job that most people in journalism or broadcast news would consider a dream job being on the desk of CP24, Canada's biggest breaking news network, walked away to start her own production house. And we really get into the details of that. And also the idea of real news versus fake news and the mechanisms that historically have been in place to ensure 
that there are fact checkers with broadcast news and how that really doesn't exist in social at all. I could put up anything I want and boom, there it is at yeah. scale globally. And also the idea of being harassed, you know, like she, she would go to on site to, to different locations for reports and you'd have people yelling and barking fake news at her and whatnot. And she might've been 12 hours deep into her shift, exhausted. She didn't have a camera person. So she's doing three jobs at once and someone's barking at her and you could understand why Yeah, she said, wait a minute, time to hit the reset button. But there's this really interesting shift happening with news right now. And that was sort of my world before I got into digital. So I really love that. And on that note, we got Rick Campanelli coming up, who's going to be talking about what it takes to build sustainability as a content creator. Because obviously Rick's been around since the late 90s, much music, and then eTalk. And uh, he's done a lot of different things. And he's successfully transitioned into becoming his own media company now as well. Mm -hmm. So lots of conversations that are near and dear to my heart and some tough conversations too, again, related to cancel culture, related to disinformation fake news versus legitimate news and fact-checking and um, how to build career in this space. And uh, yeah, we got uh, some interesting conversations that I really enjoyed having. I hope everybody listening will enjoy them too. Well, Eli, thank you so much for joining and kind of going through the first half of this season here. It's nice sort of taking a little bit of a trip down memory lane. Hope everybody uh, enjoyed sort of talking about some of the key details of the first half of the season and looking forward to the second half coming up real soon. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. And remember, you can stay on top of the latest industry news and upcoming podcast episodes at theinfluenceagency.com or by following us on social at Agency. We'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>